All right. Good morning, everybody. All right. So, uh, as Leah said earlier, over the last month, we've been in a series called After Easter, where we've been looking at the events that took place shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And we have reached the final event in our series, which is Pentecost, or more specifically, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, this event is actually going to take us two weeks to look at because there's a lot to talk about. So this is Pentecost part one. Now before we look at the passage for this morning, I want to remind us of a verse that we looked at last week, John 16, 7. Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So last week we talked about when Jesus went away, when he ascended. This week we're going to look at when the counselor comes, as Jesus promised. And when the counselor comes, it is going to be so good that it is going to make Jesus' going away worth it, believe it or not. So let's look at when that happens. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And as you make your way there, let me say a prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we thank you for being able to uh, hear from Rashan and Hiru. Um, Lord, we, uh, we thank you that where two or more are gathered in your name, you are there. And so, Lord, uh, we just invite you to be at work in us this morning. We recognize that you are here with us. And we want to be open to whatever your Holy Spirit wants to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you supposed. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And then skip ahead a bit in this chapter to uh, verse 36. Uh, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, in order to really appreciate what's going on in this passage, I think we have to know a little bit about the bigger story of the Bible. We kind of have to situate this event in its larger context. And what I want to suggest, this is a short phrase that hopefully you can remember, is that if we put this scene in the larger context of the Bible, we find that Pentecost is a new Sinai that reverses Babel. Pentecost is a new Sinai that reverses Babel. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's two things there that we've got to talk about, right? Sinai and Babel. So let's talk about Sinai first. Sinai, or Mount Sinai, was the mountain that Moses went up on where he met with God and he received the law that the Israelites were supposed to live by way back in the book of Exodus. Now, why should we think of Pentecost as a new Sinai, a new giving of of the law? Why? Well, because there are parallels between what happened back in Exodus and what has happened since Easter week. And I was really excited when I learned about these parallels. Hopefully, you will be too. Um, I'm sorry, that's kind of small. Hopefully you can see that. But anyway, back in the book of Exodus, right, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. And God brought them out of slavery. And the night that he freed them, each Israelite household had to sacrifice a lamb, right? And for every year since then, that sacrifice, that night was remembered through the celebration of Passover, Sound familiar? Hopefully. And after that first Passover, about 40 days passed, and then the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. And Moses went up, several days passed, and then God's fiery presence descended on Mount Sinai, and the law was given. And if we think about the story in the, book of, uh, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that we've really been tracking with over the last month since Easter, there's a lot of parallels with what happens through Jesus with what happened in the book of Exodus. Okay, so, um, let's see here. <clears throat> so remember, um, 
when Jesus was sacrificed, when he died on the cross, that happened when? That happened around Passover, right? It was during the Passover week. And there's parallels with Exodus because we know now, right, humanity was in slavery. And Jesus was like the perfect Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice that brought us out of our slavery, right? Out of our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Uh, in fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, we're supposed to think of that Passover lamb as pointing towards Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice to bring humanity out of slavery. Okay? And then, after Jesus' uh, sacrifice, after that Passover, about 50 days pass, and then we come to Pentecost. Now, Pentecost wasn't originally associated with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost preceded that. What Pentecost was, was the feast that happened 50 days after Passover. Okay, that's what Pentecost means. It's Greek for, for 50. So, when everyone gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, that event coincided with the time when the law was given at Mount Sinai. See, because it was about 50 days after the celebration of Passover. So we have this parallel, right, that when everyone gathers at Pentecost, once again, there is a fiery presence of God descending. Only this time, it's not descending on a mountain, it's descending on the people. And then, as it descends, right, the Spirit is given. Okay? So there's a lot of parallels here between what happened at Mount Sinai and what happens with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's actually more parallels than we can really get into. Uh, one of them that I found interesting is that if you look at that story in Exodus, um, 3,000 people end up dying, 3,000 Israelites. And if you know the story, you know why. It's because they worship a golden calf. They commit idolatry when Moses is on the mountain. Right? Now, there's a parallel in the book of Acts, which is that, again, that number 3,000 appears, but this time 3,000 people are converted. Okay? So, I don't think all this is coincidental. Okay? I think that God has moved throughout history. There's a pattern here. And the point that we're, we're supposed to recognize is that what happens on Pentecost is like a new and better version of what happened uh, at Mount Sinai. Um, God's presence isn't descending on a mountain, it's descending on God's people. God's law isn't being written on tablets, it's being written on people's hearts. And what's happening at Pentecost is actually a fulfillment of what was promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So at Pentecost, the new covenant has come. Pentecost is like a new Sinai. All right, so that takes care of Sinai. What about Babel? 
Well, Babel was a place where something significant happened in the book of Genesis. You might be familiar with the story. Uh, we don't have time to get into all the details, but the gist of it is that all of humanity is described as being in one place and speaking in one language. And humanity is rebelling against God. They are trying to set themselves up as their own God. And so God miraculously intervenes, and he makes it so that different groups of people speak different languages. And so they can't understand each other anymore. They can't be united in their rebellion against God. And so all of humanity ends up going off in separate directions because they can't understand each other, right? They stick with the people that they understand, and they go off. And that's what happened at Babel. But at Pentecost, what we're seeing is like an inverse of Babel, right? Um, because there are some similarities, but there's a major difference. So the similarity is that just like at Babel, God is miraculously intervening, and people are speaking in languages that they've never learned, right? But this point, the point is not to divide. The point is for them to be unified, right? The point isn't to confuse. The point is to create understanding. All the people from different nations gather together, hear people declaring the wonders of God in their own language. In other words, they hear the gospel in their native tongues, right? They hear the news that Jesus is Lord, that he is risen, and that he has overcome the forces of evil. So Pentecost reveals that God is creating a new kingdom, okay? A kingdom that is not defined by the language that people speak, not defined by the country that people are from, not defined by skin color or ethnicity, but defined by allegiance to Jesus. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit overcomes the ethnic and the national barriers that ordinarily separate people. You might say that the Holy Spirit promotes cross-cultural understanding. That's part of the, the message of Pentecost. Now, that's not to say that our ethnicity and our nationality don't matter at all. I mean, those things are part of who we are. They influence our perspective and our experience of the world. But Pentecost should remind us that we should never see those things as our primary identity. Never, okay? To do that is to return to Babel, right? And we're not supposed to be people of Babel, right? We're people of Pentecost. And that means we should be people who find our primary identity in Jesus Christ as followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't eliminate our diversity, right? He doesn't make it so everybody speaks one language. But he overcomes those barriers and gives us something to unify us that transcends um, language, nationality, race, etc. Okay? He creates a beautiful unity of diversity. That's what we see at Pentecost. So, Pentecost, the new Sinai that reverses Babel. A new law has come through the Holy Spirit that is better than the law that was given at Mount Sinai. It is a law that is written on our hearts and on our minds, and it is a law that reverses what happened at Babel. Now, 
<clears throat> in my experience, usually when the subject of Pentecost comes up, the, the discussion doesn't turn to New Sinai or reversal of Babel. What people want to talk about is speaking in tongues. And usually a debate arises over questions like, is the gift of speaking in tongues still operating today? Is anyone who's filled with the Holy Spirit supposed to speak in tongues? That sort of thing. Um, so I wanted to take some time this morning to address that particular topic, to talk about speaking in tongues. First, I want to say I think it's very sad and ironic that this is a topic that has caused a lot of division in the church um, because the original point of God uh, giving the gift of speaking in tongues wasn't to divide, right? It was to unite. <laughs> so I certainly hope that whatever I say this morning will help us to unite more than to divide. So first of all, it seems clear to me, based on my reading of scripture, that it is entirely possible for someone to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not to speak in tongues. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about spiritual gifts, he said this, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So Paul gives a list there of all these different gifts that the Holy Spirit might give. And part of the point that he's making is that we don't all have the same gifts. If you understand the larger context of this passage, that's very, very clear. Okay? Um, he's saying there's one Holy Spirit, but there's different manifestations of that Spirit. In other words, there's different ways that the Holy Spirit expresses his presence in different people. To one he gives the gift of wisdom, to another he gives the gift of faith, to another the gift of knowledge. Now notice when he gets to tongues, he doesn't say, but to all of us, tongues. Right? He says the same thing that he says for each one. So tongues is one possible manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person, but Paul does not seem to expect it to be a gift for every believer. So I'm uncomfortable when churches say that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're definitely going to speak in tongues. And there are churches that say that. Uh, and I don't mean to bring shame upon them, but I disagree with them. I just, I don't think that's true. And I think there's some danger in teaching that doctrine because it creates a situation where people feel this enormous pressure to speak in tongues. Um, people will feel like maybe even their salvation depends on whether or not they speak in tongues. And when you have an environment like that, a lot of people can end up faking speaking in tongues. They might not even do it deliberately. They might just start speaking gibberish and convince themselves, oh, I guess that's from the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's sad, because speaking in tongues is actually a really beautiful gift of the Spirit, 
and that kind of behavior ends up demeaning it, right? It makes, it makes all speaking in tongues seem suspicious. But I, I think that doesn't happen if that pressure isn't there, that pressure to say, well, if you're filled with the Spirit, you must speak in tongues. Another consequence of that kind of teaching is it puts the focus on the wrong thing. You know, a much more important sign of if we are filled with the Spirit is if we have love in our hearts. Right? Paul said, if I can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I am nothing. But as soon as we say that speaking in tongues is the sign, the universal sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we, could be, we can become more focused on that than on love, being people of love. You know, we have to remember not just the miracle at Pentecost, but what that miracle was a sign of, or what the, what the point of that miracle was. The point was not just for people to miraculously speak in languages that they never heard. Right? The point was to show that God's kingdom involves this reversal of Babel and unity across national and ethnic lines. And if we focus too much on speaking in tongues, we can lose sight of that point. Right? If someone says that they can speak in, the to in tongues so they must be filled with the Holy Spirit, but they don't have love for people who are different from them, then something's wrong. Right? If someone says, well, I speak in tongues so I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but they also think that God prefers white people and immigrants are gross and God's primary concern is American dominance on the global stage, then that person isn't really exhibiting the infilling of the Holy Spirit, right? Because their thinking isn't in line with the purpose of the miracle at Pentecost, right? They're focused on the miracle, but not what is revealed through the miracle. So they've missed the point. So I definitely think that there are harmful consequences to teaching that every Holy Spirit-filled person is going to speak in tongues. Puts unhealthy pressure on people, puts our focus in the wrong place, and I just don't see it supported in the Bible. However, I'm also really uncomfortable with the opposite extreme in this debate, which says that God just doesn't give the gift of tongues anymore. And anyone who says that they speak in tongues must either be lying or be deceived or be actually influenced by the devil or something like that. I just don't see a good biblical case for that. The New, Tes the New Testament is clear, right, that the Holy Spirit is a spiritual gift given to some believers. And there's no passage that we can point to that says there's an expiration date on that gift. And if we assume that all followers of Jesus who say that they've had an experience with speaking in tongues are lying or deceived, we are passing judgment on a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're dismissing their experiences, which we should not be quick to dismiss their experiences, and we're dismissing what could very well be the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, which we should not take lightly. That's a serious thing to do that. I'll give an example of one such experience. Uh, I read this one in a book recently, but I've heard many others like it. Uh, the book was called Modern Day Miracles by a writer and minister named Paul Prather. 
And the story goes like this. A non-religious woman named Barb is in a very abusive relationship with a man. And one of her friends, Kathy, realizes how bad this relationship is. And she says, we have to get you out of here. We have to get you away from this guy. He's going to kill you. And so she says, I will drive you from Arizona, where they lived, back to your family in New York. And so they embark on this cross-country journey to get Barb back to her relatives. And along the way, they stop at Kathy's family's house in Kentucky. And when they're there, uh, Kathy's parents encourage them to go to church with them. Kathy hasn't gone to church in a long time. Uh, Barb hasn't been to church since she was a child. Uh, but they agree to go. And uh, this is a fairly charismatic church, definitely not something Barb is used to. And after a few worship songs, Barb hears a man behind her praying. And he's praying in Greek. And she is able to recognize this because her only church experience up to that point was going to a Greek Orthodox church as a child. And she recognizes this man sounding just like the priest saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Greek. And then also saying, praise the Lord, you know. And, and so she thinks, how strange is it that there is a man who's able to speak Greek at this rural church in Kentucky. And so she turns to her friend Kathy, and she says, is he Greek? And Kathy says, no, it's, uh, he's speaking in tongues. And she says, what's that? And uh, she says, it's the Holy Spirit. And then Barb realizes, it hits her. Even if this guy did know Greek, what are the chances that he would be using the only Greek phrases that I know? And what are the chances that he'd be sitting right behind me at this moment? And it hits her, the hand of God is coming to me. And that night she gives her life to Christ. Now the man who was praying in Greek, he was a regular attender at the church. His name was Kenny. And Kenny was asked by the author of the book, can you speak Greek? And he laughed and, and he said, I flunked English. I just barely got through school. I've never studied Greek at all. I did eat in a Greek restaurant once, though. So that worship service changed Barb's life. And 12 years later, the author interviewed her. She was involved in a church in New York, and she was still walking with Jesus. Now, I can understand if you're skeptical, but there are lots of stories like that one. There really are. And if we believe that Jesus is Lord, if we believe that God is living and active, if we believe that the counselor has come, then we shouldn't be dismissive of stuff like this. Right? We should believe that God does these things, and we should believe that God can do these kinds of things in our church, too. One last comment about speaking in tongues. The gift of tongues is not just for the purpose of miracles like that one or what we see at Pentecost. Some people are given the gift of tongues for their prayer life. So it is a way for them to pray when they're not sure what to pray. And um, 
when they pray in tongues, it edifies their spirit. It just, it's good for them. And uh, Paul says in Corinthians that he speaks in tongues in his private prayer life all the time. And I think that's significant because some of the people who want to argue that God doesn't give the gift of tongues anymore say, well, tongues isn't needed anymore because the gospel has spread out to all these different nations, right? So people who speak all these different languages now know the gospel. So the, gospel, the, the gift of tongues is not necessary. But that neglects to recognize that in scripture, the gift of tongues is not just for that purpose. It's also for private prayer life as well, okay? So, um, again, that's another reason why I see no reason to think that this gift has ceased, as some people say. So, we have every reason to think that the Holy Spirit still gives people the gift of tongues, but we shouldn't assume that every person receives that gift, or that every person who is filled with the Holy Spirit is going to speak in tongues. I think that is the healthy middle ground that results in more unity than division, as God intends and what I want to encourage us to do this week is just to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. You know, I encourage us to spend some time in prayer, just saying, God, I want to be open to you. You know, if you want to impart gifts to me, please impart gifts to me. I'm ready. I'm willing to receive. If you want me to speak in tongues, I'll speak in tongues. If you want me to share the gospel with somebody... Show me who you want me to share it with. If you want me to get out of my cultural echo chamber and be part of helping to reverse Babel, show me how to do that. You know? Spirit, help me to believe that Jesus is Lord and to live like Jesus is Lord. Help me to reverse Babel. Write your law on my heart and on my mind. So let's start praying that right now. Lord Jesus... We want to be open to whatever it is that you want to do in us. And Lord, as we read the story about Pentecost, we, we see the exciting ways that you work, Lord. And uh, we don't want to be dismissive of the miraculous. Uh, we don't want to limit you. We don't want to box you in, Lord. We want to be open. We want to receive all the good gifts that you have for us, Lord. And if any of us are uh, unwilling or closed off for some reason, Lord... Uh, help us just to, to open up, Lord. Help us to recognize that your intentions for us are good, that you love us. Um, your word says that you are like a father who knows how to give good gifts. And so, Lord, we just want to be open to receiving whatever good gifts you have to offer. Lord, we do pray that we would be people of Pentecost, not people of, Bab of Babel, that the church would reflect um, freedom from the hostility that often exists between people of different ethnicities, different nationalities, different languages. May we embody a unified people united around the fact that Jesus is Lord. In your name, amen.